Listening Dog Media. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. guest on the Offside Rule exclusives is England women's record goalscorer Kelly Smith. The former Arsenal striker retired from football in January 2017. She was part of the quadruple winning Arsenal ladies team of 2006-07, scoring 30 goals in 34 games across the four competitions and voted Players Player of the Year two years in a row. Widely regarded as England women's best ever player, injuries plagued her career. But Smith still managed to represent the national team at three European Championships and two World Cups. A trailblazer in the women's game, Smith was appointed as a player coach at Arsenal in 2013, but is currently taking time away from football to raise her first child. The Offside Rule Exclusives with Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper. Well, Kelly's kindly invited Kate and I into her home. Two dogs are locked away. There's a baby upstairs sleeping. Our first impression, Kate, is one of a busy household, wouldn't you say? That's right, Rocco sleeping, well, kind of sleeping upstairs, which is quite an achievement at this time of night for a 10-month-old. Um, tell us about being a mum, because that's that's been a huge change. Oh, my God, yeah. I think, you know, it's really changed my, my lifestyle, my met mentality of of life really because I've put so much emphasis on my football career over 20 years and having Rocco has just really um, made me so happy and not to neglect anything that I've done in my football career but he's the best trophy um, that I've ever won if I can say that Um, but no if you know what I'm saying it's just he is the ultimate now and that is my main focus all about Rocco. Have you purposely taken a bit of a break away from football? Are you still digesting it? Are you still following it as much? Or is, has it been nice to sort of have a bit of a hiatus? Um, yeah, I've obviously been on maternity leave now for 10 months, um, which has been fantastic, really raising him and really bonding with him. Um, so it's been a pleasure to do that. But I've been trying to keep up with football as much as possible, but it's very, very difficult <laughs> um, because I don't really have a lot of time on my hands mm. to watch games. I try and do it as much as possible when he's in bed just to keep up to date with stuff because of you know the few media bits of work that I've been doing. I need to know my knowledge um, and what's going on in the football world. Do you think about how football will fit in with Rocco's life? Well, to be fair, I th- he loves football already. He's 
can he's just about walking obviously I have to stand behind him but he knows what a football is I say to him where's the football and he goes and kicks it and we play football um in the kitchen and in here and he know he's in his mind to kick it it's really weird I spoke to we have a nanny um, a few days a week and she said I've never seen a baby that young kick a ball um, so she said it's because of me. So it really is surprising. <laughs> so he, this he is exciting. It. Well, yeah, I might go and put a bet on uh, <laughs> that he could play for Arsenal or England. But no, it's, you know, I, I would love him to play football. But if he doesn't, if he's not sporty, that's fine mm. too. I just want him to be happy, healthy and, and do what he wants to do. Kelly, a lot of these podcasts, we we, we started out with early life and, and how things started out and where people found their love for football. And I'm, I'm going to mix it up a little bit with you because I, I think we should go backwards a little bit. I want to start with what football means to you, what it has actually done for you in your life and, and how you think of it. Oh, uh, football was my world, was everything to me. Um, from a very young age, from the age of six, I always had a football at my feet. If it wasn't a football, it was a stone kicking a stone to school. If it was, um, my mum had told told me off for smashing a, a vase in the in the front room, knocking but with the ball, it'd be a balloon or socks rolled up. So it always had a sphere at my feet, just working on my technique and my touch. And I grew up loving the game. I watched Match of the Day. I would tape it um, and I would practice the turns and the moves and imagine myself on the pitch and from yeah from a young age it was always something that I was really passionate about and and kind of good at um if not being too big-headed but I just love playing football with the boys in the playground jumpers down for for goalposts and obviously it progressed from there because of the love for it um I then joined to a boys team where I got kicked off for being a girl and then joined another boys team and the same thing happened um, and then I had to go and find a girls team to play on is it right that the parents petitioned against you playing because they were embarrassed. Yeah, they didn't want to field a side against um, our team because of pure of pure fact that I was a girl and I was good and I was making their sons embarrassed. Um, <laughs> I was dribble around them and score, you know, five, six goals a game and they just couldn't handle it. So they said, we're not fielding a team. So it wasn't fair on my team that I still played that, because we would never get a game. So um, that's part of the reason why I had to finish playing and find a girls team in a couple of towns over. So it's something... Like feminism, is that something that, that you were quite starkly aware of quite early on, that things weren't the same for women? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a love and a passion that I had for the game and being told that I couldn't do it, it was soul-destroying for me because I really that's what I was good at, that's what I wanted to do. I'd, like, all my friends were were boys. Um, so to be told that I couldn't do that, it, it really was upsetting. And um, But it made me even more determined to to prove people wrong that, you know, I can play football just because I'm a girl. It doesn't matter. When you were watching Match of the Day, whose turn was it that you were emulating? <laughs> I was literally about to ask the same thing. Um, it was mainly Ryan Giggs because I was the same player as him. I liked to dribble with the ball at my feet. I was left footed. He was left footed. He was a left winger. I was a left winger. So I kind of role modelled myself. I idolised him and just watched him in the games and, and tried to do certain things in, in certain parts of the field um, that he would do and take that into my game on, on the football pitch. You found a girls team, but ultimately your route to becoming England's first professional female football player sort of started in America, really. Did it have to start in America? Was there any other option for you as you saw it at that time? Yeah, that was the only option because um, I've said that women's football at that time was a bit of a joke because we were training two nights a week 
And, it, you know, I was getting home at 11, half 11 at night because we could only use the ball court at eight o'clock at night when most of the the, the men and the youth have used, used the facilities. So it was, wasn't taken serious at all. And in America, um, you know, the scholarships and the, the universities out there, but they were training every day with a ball at their feet and obviously studying and trying to get a, their education. But for me, that was the ultimate to try and get a scholarship and train every day because that's, I knew I'd improve um, and I wanted to improve and, you know, try and be the best that I could be. You've been called one of the most naturally talented female players of our time. There's an incredible amount of respect for you. And I think some of our listeners here who don't know a lot about you may not know the scale of your skill and your talent I mean it, it's absolutely huge and actually and, and actually still in today's modern game as well because of course you can be very good 20 years ago and it not those those skills not translate to the modern day but actually if you were still playing you'd still be cutting it with the best when did you realize you had something a bit different something a bit special was it quite late on or was it early no it, it was um during the boys um, games because I was probably the best player on the pitch and scoring so many goals per game and I just felt I was just really natural with the ball at my feet Mm. it was easy for me to go around players and and slot the ball into the back of the net or to see an assist and put somebody in Um, I realised that I was different from everybody else around about six or seven. And when that scope when that pond got got bigger for you as the fish when you went to America was there any doubt? Was there any concern? Or was that, you know, again, somewhere where you felt naturally very happy, very at ease, very, very capable to match their level? Um, there was a lot of concern because I was only 17 years old and leaving my parents, my friends, my family was a massive um, feat for me to do um, because I'm quite a homebody and I was quite shy and reserved and not that confident. So for me to take myself to a country where... I didn't know anyone, was was very, very frightening. I was crying as I was boarding the plane, but I knew I had to do it to pursue my dream of being a professional athlete. And, you know, I had a horrendous time out there for the first three or four months. I was so homesick. Um, I regretted the decision daily. I was constantly crying on the phone to my parents saying, I want to come back. And we scheduled a phone call every Sunday um, just to talk about how I was feeling and it got easier and my mum, you know, eventually said, you know, make it two weeks and then we'll check in. And then it turned out that I was what they were calling me to make sure that I was all right. Because I actually, you know, I really settled in quite, quite quick, not quite quickly, but after five or six months, I kind of liked it and, and, and um, really started enjoying it. Kelly Smith, the Offside Rule exclusives. The sacrifices that you had to make, not only the upheaval of going to another country to pursue this, but, you know, football was the end goal. But along the way, it did mean that you ended up having to really rely on your dad on certain occasions. And I remember you, you've told me before that your dad had to fly out, didn't he, to come and basically rescue you at one point in your life. And... Does that make you have a different relationship with football? I mean, although the end goal was great and you had a, an amazing career, there were these other offshoots from from this love for football, which actually were quite damaging. Yeah, I hated football when I was in my worst state. Um, you know, I didn't want to play anymore. I was in a really bad spiral of drinking every day, upset, um, couldn't move because I was on crutches and had a plaster cast on. I had three serious injuries back to back. And, um, you know, I thought about committing suicide because I didn't know which way to turn I didn't have football I didn't have my family close to me and as I said I wasn't really 
buddy buddy with anybody out there. They were my colleagues. They were my teammates, but they weren't really my friends. They didn't really know me inside out. So I hid a lot of my drinking and, um, you know, pretended that I was okay and I really wasn't okay. And that's that's when my dad flew out to, to kind of rescue me. And, and with women's football at that time, there wasn't the sort of professional backup either, was there, like the PFA or the people that you no. could speak to about these problems? There was nothing. And um, I had no guidance, no support. And um, that's part of the problem was the, why I got myself so low and um, so sad because I didn't lean on anybody and I didn't speak about my feelings. And um, since obviously going through rehab and um, getting older, and really knowing myself and coming to terms with who I am as a person, um, you know, that I, I suffered a few injuries later on in my career. And I've, I didn't go down that route because I'd had that experience of pulling myself through and, and speaking to people and, um, you know, going through therapy really helped. We know about the drinking. Um, you've, you've written about it before and that doesn't take any of the shine off it at all that vodka was really seeing you through. And um, I've read that you would, you know, drink until you pass out, basically. Just picking up on the suicide side of it, that's really low, Kelly. I mean, yeah. that's 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 really, really horrible to hear, actually. What do you feel when you think about that time? And drinking's one thing, but you know, suicide's another. How did you get from one to the other? How did how did those feelings get so bad that you felt there was no other alternative mm. than to not be here? Um, well, well, when I was so out of it, you know, you're not thinking rational. You're by yourself. I was by myself in my apartment and absolutely smashed and not thinking. And, you know, I go to the cupboard and I'd hold a bottle of paracetamol um, and shake them and just see, see how many are in there and think about just necking them um, with my drink because I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to live anymore. And that was, you know, really, really difficult for me to go through. Um, I'd look around my apartment and see what's the best fit in where I could hang myself um, because I didn't know I just didn't want to feel I didn't I didn't have football I couldn't express myself and I was um, as I said I was quite a reserve shy person so I really expressed myself on the football pitch and that's where I love to be and that I couldn't do that for a number of years and I just didn't know which way to turn. Did you tell your dad about those feelings is that why he came out or did you not did, did that not come till later uh, the suicidal thoughts I didn't tell him about but he could he could just tell he's my dad he knew that I was in a bad way and I just said look I've had enough and he said right I'm going on a plane the next day and he come out he's helped me sell my car we got my dog all the right papers from the vet to fly her back and then um, sold all my furniture and stuff like that and then I was straight back home so if your dad wasn't there, if he didn't pick mm. up on that, that doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Especially mm. because you're in such a different place now. You know, we, we're kind of fast fast forwarding on what, sort of 15 years or so. Yeah. And, and you're in such a different place now. But it makes me so sad mm -hmm. that that might not, that, that, that kind of today might not have been because, because you were in that state. Yeah, and certainly he's my saviour. I've told him that many a times for, for him to come out there and do that for me, um, which he says it's his job, it's his, he's my dad and he knew me and that's what dads do. So he did what was the best thing for me at the time and I'm his little girl and always will be and we've still got a really close relationship now. But yeah, those times are really dark and horrendous, but that's in my past now and I don't really think about that too much. It's... You know, my life has changed so much. Um, I have finished my career on a high um, and then obviously fell pregnant as soon as I um, finished. So I'm in a happily um, 
relate, happy relationship and loving life at the minute. What it does go to show is that the achievements that you made, it, it makes them even greater because how many people would have got to where you did having to go through all those hurdles? A lot of people, I'm sure, even at a similar time to you, were falling by the wayside. They were saying, no, that's too tough. You know what? Well, I'm not going to carry on doing that. They might not have been having exactly the same experience, but in terms of footballing terms, the one thing you can say is that the experience with the boys teams, there would have been people your age going through something similar and saying, you know what? I'm not going to go down this football route because... I can't, it's not possible, you know, just giving in. So why was it that you kept going and seeing it through and then (laughs) managed to actually become one of the most famous names in the game? Um, Yeah, I think I've got a real, real sense of pride and um, I knew I wanted to win so many trophies and be recognised as one of the best players in the world and I, I couldn't just walk away from the game. I wanted to at times, but... I just, there's something in me that didn't want to give up. And each injury that I had, I just got my teeth gritted and just thought, get get your head down and work as hard as you can in your rehab and get back and prove people wrong because people write you off. Mm. You know, after the third or fourth injury, she's not going to come back. She's not going to be the same player. And I think um, that was an extra motivation for me because I knew I had the technique and the talent. If I just applied myself and if I could get a good year or two without injuries, I knew I could... Um, really help Arsenal and England reach, um, you know, high targets. What makes this even more interesting now when you've got the comparison of since uh, we talk about the Olympics and potentially 2015 World Cup being a changing point in women's football, which was the Olympics, the very, very end of your career and the 2015 World Cup, you were you were actually part of the Fox Sports team and um, punditry. Mm-hmm. So up to that point, your name is one of the biggest names in women's football to the point where as someone who's who's been involved in football a lot myself and spoken to a lot of people, you'd say to anyone, name me an England women football and they say Kelly Smith and you're the role model. You're it. That's the role model. And now you do it now. And you'll have Lucy Bronze, Steph Horton, Frank Kirby, Jodie Taylor after recent events. And there are a few names that people say, but yours was it. That was the name that everyone said. And how different is that for you? It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I don't really view it like that. I think, you know, I've... I had my own career path and I had to choose my path because the women's game wasn't where it is now. Um, so I had to leave to go to America. I had to play in two professional leagues out there. And the game was booming out there. So I loved my time out there. And after 99, when the US women won the World Cup, um, the attendances that we were getting at the games were thousands. And mm-hmm. to play in, in America and against the best players in the world at that time um, was phenomenal. And I really, you know, my mindset out there was just a full professional when I learned how to be, how to train like an American because they're all focus driven they give everything every training session and it's not like how it was back in England where it was you know some people didn't even turn up for training but they'd still play in the game on Sunday whereas in America you were focused you were driven you give everything in training you come off sweating and you know it was all camaraderie and team teamwork whereas in England it was very very different at that time what was it like coming back to England was it like oh there's our flash Flash Kelly plays over in the States, you know, look at her with all the all the skill and the precision passing. Um, or did you just fit right back in? Because at that time, really, you know, honestly, there was a gulf 
between what was happening in America mm. and what was happening in England. And that was in no small part due to the fact that the structure in England didn't support what was happening in America. And perhaps now we are seeing more of what England women are capable of because of all that structure in place by the FA. And other players followed you, didn't they? I mean, you'd, you'd gone out to America and then we saw other players going out and following what you'd done. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I just think that it was, I had to do it just mm. for me um, personally because the game was, was nowhere near it where it needed to be. But now I look at the way the structure of the game is um, in England now and how many, um, how much money is involved in the game and the fans, the attendances are a lot bigger I tell the youngsters now that they don't need to go to America because you have it all on your doorstep. If you want to be a professional athlete now, you can be it in England and mm. you can earn a career out of it. So there is no need to go to America. A lot of the best players aren't in America anymore. They're in mm. England. Mm. A lot of the top European players are here. A lot yeah. of the Americans are coming over yeah. to give it a go as well, aren't they? A lot of nationalities are here um, all across, across the world because they see now the likes of Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, all pumping a lot of money into their programme and... Um, the way the game's developing, it's obviously the national team is doing really, really well. And England now is a, a leading force in world football. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Offside Rule TV, for exclusive video football content. As Lindsay said, you were the poster in the bedroom of the girl who played football, the only one, for, <laughs> for, for a long while. There was Kelly and there was also that... Oh, and, and She's with the captain, but they didn't know. And it was like, yeah, it's Faye White. Yes, yes. Faye yeah. and I, you, you, Faye and I used to. Um, people used to think I was Faye, and, and people used to think she uh, she was oh, Kelly. Great. So we used to banter about that a little bit. But just because we're blonde, that's all. And <laughs> and women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah similar. Um, now there are several household names um, in the England women football team, but here's my concern: that the game's accelerating, it's growing, and that's great. But so is the pressure and the profile of some of these players is there a danger that some may get too big for their boots and let's be really frank about this have you seen anything like that have you seen instances of that I th- you know the way the game's going there's a lot more money involved Every, you know i um, had a boot sponsor and only not many people had boot sponsors back then now everybody has a boot sponsor everybody's on um you know somewhat decent money for their clubs and an England central contract that have gone up over the years and there's a lot more money involved I just hope the fem- the women in the game don't you know look at themselves as being arrogant um, because it's not the right place mm. to be I don't think that's the way the women's game is and has been um, I don't think is there a word of warning for you here because you must have seen I mean I mean it's it's it's, it's partly human nature whether you're a footballer, whether you happen to be doing well in business, whether you feature in a TV program, whether whether you are someone plucked off the street and suddenly become a reality TV star, right? It basically happens. It's part of human nature. So what's the warning from you? Um, just keep your feet on the ground because the games, the women's game isn't like that. And I don't want it to see go that go that way because for so many years, you know, even before my time, there were women that had less than what? what we had in my era and now you see the players have got a lot more and some of them are can be a little bit big-headed what have you seen that you don't like just comments that I've heard about you know certain players um wanting this money or wanting to be the, the the face of this team um little things is there agent issues as well do you oh, think massively yeah the way I think even some of my academy players um 
are asking me about agents and they've not even made it in the game yet. They're 18, 19 and they're looking for an agent. I mean, um, it's just crazy. I don't think that they should be thinking about that. They should be getting their head down, trying to make the Arsenal first team and then see what happens after that. If you play well on the pitch, then your agent will come to you. You shouldn't be looking for an agent at, you know, when you're not even playing first team football yet. See, this is why you have great value as a coach because not only because of what you could offer in, in coaching capacity but because of your experience and the dressing room talk that you could give but it seems like that's something you might be putting on hold for a while especially as soon as your new mum but did you enjoy that did you enjoy that part of it um yeah it was difficult for me because you know finishing my career and then going straight into the the coaching role of the development team um it's, it's so different when you're playing because you just think about yourself and you go out and you play and you perform and you have a laugh with your teammates. Whereas when you're the step on the other side of, of the coaching sideline, you know, you're the, you're the one person that everybody's looking at now. You have to set up all the sessions. You have to really plan the sessions with your assistant coach. Um, you have to meet um, before the sessions, talk about it. What's your outcome? And then you have to affect every player within the session. You have to you know, debrief the session, go away, talk about who who played well. So there's so much prep and planning. And then obviously the games, setting up all the kit. See, that's so different because the way that I view you as a player was it's instinctive. You know, you've already spoken about how it was natural. You were playing with these boys. It was an instinctive thing. And then you've got to put that into <laughs> words and you've got to say, OK, well, go around this cone and do this. And that's how you do what I did. It, it must be so difficult. It, yeah, it was very hard for the first couple of months. I really was so nervous every session because it just felt like it was very unnatural for me to be telling people what to do um, and just trying to show them certain pictures um, on the field as to what they should be doing and, and what was probably a, a better option that they could have made. It was very difficult. And just to have the, the conversations with them about their performance after the game and their end of season meetings, being honest was um, with the players. Yeah, it's very mm. difficult. Um, do, you, do you then necessarily think that being a great footballer, you can be a great coach? No, it doesn't work like that at all. I think... You can see that um, Wenger wasn't a very uh, good player. Mourinho wasn't good, a good player, but they've both been fantastic managers. It doesn't mean that just because you've been reached the highs of um, being regarded as one of the best in the world that you're going to be a good coach. And, you know, that's... But people expect me to be a good coach because I'm a good player. And there's an added pressure there <laughs> from the outside that I know everything. I don't know everything. Mm. Um, you know, I'm still at the bottom of the coaching ladder on the coaching pathway and... Um, that I had to kind of take with a pinch of salt and, and just not care what people think um, and think that I know everything because I really, really don't. So, so after the Mark Sampson affair and then you, you, there was all the speculation about who would take the, the England job and there were many people from different quarters who were so opinionated when Phil Neville did get the job that it should have been someone with more experience in the women's game. I mean, what, where were you on that fence? Well, when my na <clears throat> name was touted, I actually laughed at it because there's no way I'm ready to take on uh, the England women football job. No way. Um, I know all the players and I know them quite well, but for me to step into that role was never, ever going to happen. Um, I did come out and say I thought it should have been a female coach because I think females um, don't work in the men's game. All the doors are closed. So if you're good enough and you have the right qualifications, you know, you should be put, if you want the job, you should, you know, be a contender for it. Mm. Um, Phil Neville didn't go for the job and he was given the job. So you can see why people are irate about it. But on hind hindsight, I think, 
you know, it was out of the blue. It was a shock one. And I think I think he'll do really well because I know that the players really respect him mm. because of his career. He's played under Sir Alex Ferguson. He's got all that coaching, obviously that experience there. He's won trophies for Manchester United Champions League. He actually was a coach uh, before um, taking this job. He has his pro licence, but he just hasn't had his own team. Mm-hmm. And I know speaking to some of the players, they're really up for it because... He's really down to earth and he wants to win. He's coming from a winning background and that's what the, all these players want. They want to win a major tournament. Reaction when he first got the job. Come on, <laughs> be honest. What, because we were pretty shocked. Mm. I think most football fans were pretty shocked because it did appear to come out of left field for me anyway. It's like Kelly said, he was approached for it, wasn't he? So that's why it was a bit of a shock. Well, I think the way um, the Mark Sampson affair was was handled, I was told... Um, by a good source that they had three really good candidates um, that had got through to the final interviews. But then when they were told that their history would be dug up, that two, two or th- both, all three of them, sorry, fell away at the last moment. So they had all the the three contenders that were good for it just pulled away. So then they had were they none. male or female? Do we know? Uh, a couple were f- two were female, one was male. Um, so yeah, it just says it all that those. Everyone's got skeletons in their closet, mm. but I think the way it was just handled, um, these one of them had kids, so they, they, you know the kids didn't he, the the guy didn't want his kids to be ridiculed or anything about his past, so it went like bang bang bang, three top contenders fell away, and um, they were, then they were back to no one. So I think that's probably why. And even then, with Phil Neville, it didn't stop them going through his tweets well it didn't oh. <laughs> it didn't kind of pay off all that all that due diligence because what might have put off one worthy able manager for that job um what what might have put the FA off for that person didn't put them off for Phil Neville in the end because tweets were a reveal where he appeared to be making quite sexist comments towards women and towards his wife I think a lot of people, though, knew that the context of those, it's a difficult one because I I see, you know, when they were written and you you read them out loud, they they appeared very bad. But Mm. as someone who knows Phil, I've only met him a few times, I've worked with him a few times, but he has got that sort of tongue to him where you know that it it's not really meant it's like said a bit in jest but 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 it, it didn't excuse the first few encounters that the public and the press had with him being a a bit calamitous really he didn't appear to know a lot of his players or know you know their particular strengths or history now you know, who am I sitting here saying, well, of course, he's been offered this job. Should he know every single thing about every single player? But I'll return to those three candidates. I bet they probably knew a lot more than Phil Neville did. Yeah, they were all involved in the women's game um, across international level and club level. So, yeah, they knew everything. They knew every player. They knew the system. Um, yeah, it was it's just um, it's just the way it is. I think I, when I first heard it, I was like, wow, okay. I know there's going to be a lot of negative press, but why not give him the back in? And when I saw his press conference up at St George's Park, the amount of press that were there for an England women's manager was unreal. So I think it's just the initial few months and let's see how he does. Um, you know, what will happen if he does win the World Cup? You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. If England ranked second in the world. They're going to qualify top of their group. Um, I think they've got a really, really good chance. USA aren't the team that they used to be. Germany aren't the team they used to be. Sweden aren't. And England are on, on the up. I really think, you know, if, if they have that little bit of luck with, that you do in tournaments and the team get on and he gets rid of some of the bad eggs, um, then I think they've got every opportunity to win it. 
I think it's great that the way the game is going now because there's so much more profile. You see the young girls that are there really cheering on the players and it's the grassroots level that you really want to hit, get the girls interested. Even if they don't want to play football, there's there's other careers that they can have in football, refereeing, coaching, um, journalism, all across the board. Offside Rule exclusives are available to download for free via Audio Boom and iTunes. Just looking at the harmony and, and all of those things that have happened in the game in the last couple of years, do you think that's perhaps the biggest challenge right now is to get that right? You have to have the right crop of players, the right group of players that are all pulling together. You don't want any individual in there that's all about themselves because you don't win a game um, by yourself. You win a, you know, a game as a squad, as 30 or players or 23 players in tournaments. So... A lot of work I know was done um, in in the build up to the 2015 um, camp with togetherness and you know dealing with if you're not playing and hiding your emotions if you're upset um, or you know really not bitching about it or or showing that you're angry in front of other players because the manager picks a squad you don't take it out on your teammates and um, that what that's what makes you a good team player you give everything in the training and then it's the manager and the assistant manager that talk about it and pick the squad so then you just if you're, if you're unhappy about it you don't really show it you show support and then you make sure you're ready if needed to go on and help your team did it really work though because even at that world cup where mark sampson to his credit did do a lot with team bonding girls exchange shirts didn't they before the game one player would give the other player their shirt in this kind of ceremonious way. But yet there were still players falling out with each other and swapping rooms. Are we always going to get this? Yeah, Are, you're, you're, yeah you're always going to get that. Um, is it a female thing? Um, I don't know because I've not really been involved in the men's <laughs> game in order to comment on that. And I don't, I don't want to compare it, but I'm, 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 mm. I'm, I'm thinking like an external person looking at the women's game. Well, I had room with Faye White for a good 15 years. We never fell out. Um, so it's just the way the game was back then. Um, but yeah, I think, you, you know, you're not gonna, really going to like everyone in, in your workplace and your workforce. It's how you deal with your emotions and, and you have to work together because everyone wants to come together and win something. Um, so I don't think everyone's always going to be happy in camp. But it is very intense when you're away at a World Cup or Europe, European Championships because you're with it in each other's space 24/7 for a good few weeks and um I think I think Mark got it right in terms of he would give the players a few days off um just to get away wear your civilian clothes get out experience the city whereas when I was playing we hardly had any days off with hope it was just really intense all the time meeting after meeting after meeting and you really got sick of it at times <laughs> uh, being in the tournament and that's probably why we didn't perform as much because we didn't have as much downtime and time away from it um, in a tournament um, so I can see you know, you know I see the players now when I was out in 2015 they were out um, sightseeing and going on the yeah. the, the seaplane to them in Moncton yeah. all the time. Moncton, which was like the Ipswich of Canada, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I heard it was like people were a bit odd look, looking there. <laughs> it didn't help that the England there's, there's basically one hotel in the whole of Moncton that was big enough to hold a team and its staff, and it was split into two with the French team and the English team, who of course played each other. Mm. Quite a feisty game. Um, so that didn't help that the girls were basically cooped up in a hotel with their, one of their main opposing sides. Um, what's your take on Mark Sampson now? Obviously, you know, it's 
he's not involved in the game. I don't know where he is. He's gone <laughs> underground. Um, I don't know if he'll ever get a job in football again. Who knows? Um, but, you know, I do feel feel for him because it wasn't a nice way to go out. Um, it's just a difficult one to comment on, really. We can't speak to you without speaking about goals. And there's the famous picture of you kissing the boot. And I wondered if that was your favourite goal you've ever scored and whether that's represented by the way that you celebrated it or if there is another that springs to mind more. Well, that was the most iconic one that mm. I've kind of been remembered for. Um, and that is probably one of my most favourite pictures, uh, mainly because, you know, I'd come back from a serious injury um, and had played on the national team for 10 years and not really qualified for any tournament so it was my first tournament England's first tournament in 10 years and um, yeah I, I, I did a lot of visualisation the night before the game um, and thought if I scored if I scored a goal I'd just take my boot off and kiss it uh, because that had never been done before you know taking your shirt off whatever I'm not going to do that um, so yeah it was just like and it happened within a moment and then you know it just took it off and then I just decided to run with it um, so the whole celebration evolved it just took me away with the elation of the goal and then the second I, I didn't even think I would score a second goal I scored the second one and then both boots come off and I kissed, <laughs> kissed it so it was that one wasn't planned what would you have done if you just scored three uh, that's a good question yeah I don't know um, but yeah I actually I think it's got told off after for doing that mm. celebration by the manager Hope Powell because she said I was a bit arrogant and that players always, opposition always want to kick me. So now you've just added extra spice to them, which I can get now. I got that after, so I didn't do it ever again. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't have changed that because that's how I felt at the time. Just pure elation, first World Cup, four goals, helped England get to a quarterfinals, but it just wasn't meant to be. Talking of Hope Powell, she called you a once or twice in a lifetime player. Uh, a former US coach. Um, when you were playing over there and that was when the, the team was achieving huge success both on the Olympic and, and World Cup stage um, said you would have been an automatic choice for the US national team had you been eligible which is a, which is a huge compliment and during 2011 Mia Hamm um, said during the World Cup that your touch is a different class everything clean and with a purpose and just to add to that after you retired Peter Beardsley phoned you up well, he left you a voicemail, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he said, um, <laughs> just want to congratulate you on a fantastic career. Um, you're the best number 10 that I've ever seen and you were better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a real nice um, comment from him because I'd never met him before. And obviously he was a, a fantastic player for England and, and Newcastle. And obviously April Heinrichs was the US coach, I think, that mm. said that. Um, so that's really touches my heart because at the time, US uh, national team were the best in the world and they the players that they had in that team were mm -hmm. phenomenal you know Brandy Chastain uh, Mia Hamm Christine Lilly Brianna Scar uh, Scurry just stacked with superstars all across it so I actually idolised those players I looked up to them and thought I wish England were as good as, the, as this side because um, if I if England were we would have won a tournament or if I could have played in that side how good must um, must I have been and, and that team would have been so um, yeah and then Hope Powell's comment was really nice um, because she's been at the top of the game uh, the women's game for a, a good 20 odd years for the national team and she really helped develop me as a person and as a player so that was nice So on the back of all this do you still one day want to become England women manager? That's a tough one um, because I haven't coached 
um, and been out on the field for a, nearly a year now because of Rocco. And I think my main focus right now is just to look after him and raise him the best I can. I'm on the A licence. I haven't been out coaching because of childcare and, and that. So I, my, my goal, my focus isn't the England job right now. Who's to say in a few years it might happen? I don't know, but I really have to get out on the on the coaching um, aspect and learn and, and you know, uh, make mistakes and, and grow as a coach. But right now, my focus is Rocco. In terms of England women winning a World Cup, Claire Balding, I think, said that she thought that England women would win a World Cup before the men do. Do you agree with her? I did up until, obviously, the new crop of young male players that are coming into the game now. But I do think, yeah, I, I, you know, it's close. It's a close call because I think the... The, the crop of players now that Phil Neville has are, are very hungry for success and more talented than the players that I played with with England. They've got a better game understanding. They're better technical players. The coaching aspect of the game now is is a lot better. So they are understanding tactics more. And um, yeah, I think they've got a real good opportunity. But I'm also looking forward to this World Cup in Russia because I think... You know, the crop of players that Gareth Southgate has to pick um, are young and hungry for it and play and haven't played. A lot of them haven't played in a tournament, so they've got no fear. And I think that is crucial going into a tournament um, because I think the, the former crop of players, the men's players, they had a lot of fear and they were expected to win something. Whereas these England players, no one's expecting them to do anything. They're not. A lot of people aren't even expecting England to get out of the group. So they've got nothing, you know, to prove out there. And that sometimes helps you perform better in tournaments. What would the women winning the World Cup do for the game? What do you think it would do next? You know, we've got to a certain level, but I, I've always believed that winning ultimate silverware will will change it for another another decade, another however long? Will it bring more profile to the game? I don't really know what, what would happen. I know with the, the women's rugby, um, them winning the, the gold has really ele- elevated their game. Yes, a lot of people don't go and watch women's rugby, um, but just in terms of commercial things have happened on that side. The women's cricket has become, when they won the World Cup, um, has become more at the forefront, uh, more in the papers. So I think, you know, if England can, can go on and win that World Cup, that it would just change the whole face of the game. I think the players become more household names, more money will come their way, I guess. And the profile of the game will just get higher. I hope then more people will come out and support the club at club level because um, I don't think, you know, a lot of people come out and, and support the women's FAWSL as much as we all hope. And I think that will really kickstart the league if they do, do uh, win the World Cup. Brilliant. Well, thank you for speaking to us and we look forward to seeing what you do next. But in the meantime, enjoy being a mum. Mm. I really want to be there one day when you play <laughs> him your best goals. <laughs> yeah, he's actually, uh, when, when he was first born, it was a really nice gesture. Uh, the FA actually sent a, his uh, my number 10 shirt um, obviously his size shrunk it, shrunk it with a little baby <laughs> kit with the number 10 and it said Rocco on the back so oh, um, he's, he's actually just fit into that now so just ready in time for the Men's World Cup there we go perfect thank you <laughs> the Offside Rule Exclusives is produced by Offside Productions and edited by Lucy Lavery Sports Social Podcast Network it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.